and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me different sayings that mean a lot to me uh, things that I strive for recognizing my responsibility to give back reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say I'm going to break the mold two days after my second injury my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home I ran up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall, no quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me, and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levitson. Excited to have you with us for another episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you can help us out at the podcast. So patreon.com is a website that helps content producers like myself generate revenue without the typical advertising method. So patreon.com backslash intentional performers is where you can find our homepage and you can help throw us a few bucks as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month to help us continue to make this podcast as good as it possibly can be. So if you're listening to the podcast and you enjoy it, please go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers and throw us a few bucks. Also, for those of you that are on social media, please share these conversations. Uh, We are so grateful for those of you that share on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever it is that you're social, continue to do so. It really helps us expand our reach and the growth of the podcast from last year, 2017 to this year, 2018 has been dramatic and remarkable. And it really is because of people like you sharing on social. So thank you everyone for your continued support. It really does mean a ton to us. Now to today's guest, Phil Weber is somebody that I met in Las Vegas. We were both there for the NBA Summer League and I was also there for a conference and we sat next to each other at a game and just started chatting nonstop. We were introduced to each other by Danny Ferry, who was a former guest on the podcast. And today Danny works with Phil with the New Orleans Pelicans. But before Phil got to the New Orleans Pelicans, he spent time with the Miami Heat, the New York Knicks, the Phoenix Suns, the University of Florida, Chaminade University, Iona University. He was the head coach of the Sewell Falls in the then D League, but the now G League. So he is a basketball lifer and has coached at a number of different levels. He also worked as a player development coach from 1995 to 1998, where he worked with over 100 NBA players. And we're going to talk about that experience and some of the players that he was fortunate to coach there and also that he was fortunate to be around in the NBA. While Phil is a coach, he really is a philosopher at heart. He is somebody who is 
always reading, always writing, always learning. And he is definitely an intentional performer. He does not just focus on basketball, but he focuses on what concepts or ideas can make the players that he serves better on the court and off the court. This conversation is rich. It's rich in story. He's been around Jim Valvano, Coach John Wooden, Mike D'Antoni, Eric Spolstra, and Kobe Bryant, and Steve Nash. So he's been around some of the best performers in basketball. But you'll find out from Phil, some of the best teachers in his life have actually been authors. So he'll get into a lot of quote-unquote self-help books that have helped guide him in his life and have really shaped his mindset, his optimism, his belief. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Phil Weber. So without further ado, I present to you, Coach Phil Weber. Coach, thanks for coming on the podcast. Excited to have you. And I figured where we would start is to really start with your journey into coaching. So I know you had a unique path. And I think we'll we'll go backwards and, and talk about your playing days as well. But let's start with coaching. So why get into coaching? How to get in? In, to get into coaching, walk us through how that all started for you. Uh, well, Brian, I got to be honest with you. So uh, having played at NC State and uh, Norm Sloan recruited me and he went down to uh, University of Florida. I, when I was at NC State, I was contemplating using it, you know, my coaching like a graduate assistant at the time. That's what, and I'm sure still do. A lot of coaches get their start that way and they use it to some use it to pay for their business. I didn't know, but it wasn't, it wasn't, I got to be honest with you. It wasn't so much, uh, in my mind that I was definitely going to be a coach and I, and I was, this was going to happen. And, uh, so I went through, I went through a, uh, uh, you know, my, I graduated and, uh, it just so happened that coach Sloan had an opening at university of Florida where he left after my sophomore year. And, you know, I start. I I was gonna, and I asked him. I said, "Coach, can I come on down?" And it wasn't necessarily as a graduate assistant. It was right on the bench. Here you go. And uh, be honest with you, I, I I've had I w- I've been blessed with a great background as far as people. My parents put me into that situation. My dad was a high school coach, and uh, I went to a you know an acclaimed high school where the, they really were amazing teaching fundamentals. And it, it, it was, I, I kind of sensed, I felt I had an aptitude for it and I wanted, and I had stuff to share and it just felt right. And then I just started putting all my energies and goals and everything, organized my life around that. So dad was a high school basketball coach. So you're around coaching from a young age. And I think one of the more interesting parts of your story is that at NC State, uh, your sophomore year, a new, uh, young head coach came in talk about your experience with Jim Valvano and what that was like uh to be around coach Valvano yeah you know it, it, it it's funny it, the two the two different two different coaches now coach Sloan got us up at five o'clock in the morning and we were out preseason and banging each other's heads you know going in certain drills and uh so that was my freshman year and then here comes coach V and, you know, there were eight people coming back from the uh, the original from uh, coming back the next year. And uh, the first thing Coach Valvano said was the best compliment you can pay up, pay me is to bring a keg over to my house and have a party. So it was a little bit different school of thought. Uh, 
But I, I, I will say this, um, from a motivation standpoint, from a, uh, he, he, w- he was just, I've never met anybody to this day that knew and could take over a room like he could. He just somehow knew that what the most important thing that was going on at that moment and that was in games. That was that was he just had a, a an amazing talent in that. When you look at when you look at those three coaches, and I'm going to put your dad in in the mix here too. So dad, Coach Sloan, and Coach V, Coach Falano. What is the number one value that they carried with them? And, and start with dad, then go to Coach Sloan, and then go to Coach V. Well, I guess uh, no one ever has asked me that way. I guess that. You know, the with my dad, it was just an amazing work ethic. I, I lived with it and, you know, where I could see how much he cared for family and how hard he worked. Uh, with Coach Sloan, it was more discipline where there was uh, – he had his way and uh, discipline was going to be first and foremost in whatever you did. And with, with V – it would be, I would say, uh, you know, belief and self-esteem was huge for him. I mean, you know, the two questions that he asked us, and, you know, I'll never forget those questions because it, it, it's always resonated with me. And that's, you know, if you're in a room by yourself, do you enjoy the company? Or if you're a corporation, would you buy stock in yourself? And everything that I've ever learned since has sprung from that. You know, I read, go ahead. If you were to say one value that explains who you are as a coach, what would that value be? Uh, Persistence. (laughs) Because, I, you know, I just, uh, I'm embracing the process. You know, I want to work hard and, you know, things uh, haven't gone once you're in the profession, you know, things aren't perfect. You learn right off that, you know, success isn't an incline going straight, you know, kind of on a hill upwards. You know, you have adversity and it's dealing with that adversity. And how do you how do you deal with that adversity? It defines you more than what happens, you know, when you are experiencing success. So when we talk about adversity and persistence, I'm going to go back to Coach Falvano because his speech at the ESPYs where he talks about don't give up, don't ever give up has become legendary and is something that gets played every year when the ESPYs are played. And for people that didn't grow up watching Coach Falvano, that is a big part of his legacy is is dying young and um, inspiring others to not give up. Uh, talk about his persistence. Well, I mean, he, you know, he's, he had it with, uh, he had to, he had to, (laughs) he wrote the book They gave me a 10 year contract and then considered me dead. And I mean, he just had a funny way of, uh, of doing all that. And unfortunately he was, he was like a shooting star, you know, he, 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 he died at, at, at such a young age, you know, uh, so his, his persistence, I think was just, uh, he he tells the story of how his dad impacted him and the whole work ethic. And I think that it, I, I guess similar to myself, but uh, there was no real uh, 
that I, I could know just 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 his belief, just believe his belief in himself. And I think that's one reason why he uh, was so adamant about self-esteem. And Where do you think self-belief comes from? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, if you listen to Freud, right, the child is father to the man. But uh, I think that uh, you you have to keep building yourself personally. I think that the more if you believe in the growth mindset and as I do, where, you know, I'm nowhere near where I want to be in five years and, and then I'll be nowhere near I want to be in five more years. So so I think that motivation is like a fire that we have to keep putting wood on it or it goes out. And I think that we always have to seek how to improve and how to, and from that we get, you, you know, it's, it's kind of like a muscle. You have to keep growing it, working on it and, and trying to, you know, become the best person you can be. And Lord knows I've made my mistakes so many, but you learn from them. You try to move forward in with it and you, and by doing that, and, and, and I think also enduring through adversity, it strengthens, you know, it strengthens you. And uh, Coach Wooden, you know, would, <laughs> he, he would say, you know, when I look back, it seems to me all the grief that had to be left me when the pain was over stronger than I was before. You know, that adversity, you know, you, you break a bone, but yet the scar tissue, it comes back stronger. So there's so much of that, I think. Was there a time in your life where persistence hurt you? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, from a, uh, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I don't know if it's ever hurt me, how I handled persistence and maybe the personality towards it. And, you know, because we all are people. And we all have different ways that we respond to certain things. Sometimes you can, you persistence can be bad, bad in a way if it, if it's not done properly and it's not and if it's not innate. I think persistence is a you know it's if you're impacting other people in a negative way. Uh, that's just a great question. I I don't know. I, I'm you know I'm not where I want to be right now. Ultimately, it's not my goal. I'm loving where I am. But it's part of the process. But that's a great question. Well, the reason I ask it is is there, there's a, a lot of reasons. But number one, I love growth mindset, which you talked about. I love the research on grit, which requires passion and perseverance, uh, courage and resolve. Um, so grit and growth mindset are, are both very popular right now. But I have a saying, you know, we always say too much of anything is a bad thing. Um, I also believe nothing of something can be a bad thing. Um, but I'm just curious if what happens if you overdose on, on persistence and the example I give is often we use the term grind in sports. Uh, amazingly hockey players use the term grind. Golfers use the term grind. Basketball players use the term grind. Baseball players use the word grind. And, you know, I, I do wonder, especially in, in, Western culture, if we have a tendency to just persist, 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 and get on a hamster wheel to just constantly focus on becoming rather than being. And I think that persistence largely is seen as a good thing. And there's science to back up 
the power of persistence. But I just, I think there's always polarities. Um, and I think um, nothing, happiness, like if you're just happy all the time, then are you really happy, right? Um, so curiosity seen as a really, one of the top traits that we can have. But if I'm curious when I have the ball in my hands and I need to make a three-point shot, Ray Allen gets a rebound at the end of the game in the NBA finals, you know, steps back in the corner to shoot a three. I'm pretty sure he doesn't need to be curious in that moment. I'm pretty sure he just needs to be. And so I love dichotomy and polarity and binaries. Um, but I put you into a box by asking you for one value. Yeah, and, yeah, you did. And certainly there's worse values that you can pick uh, other than persistence. Um, talk about how the persistence has helped you in your career because um, you, you coached in college uh, and then you end up coaching in the NBA, which uh, a lot of people dream of coaching in both of those environments. And you mentioned a lot of coaches have to go and become a graduate assistant uh, in a college program. You were right on the bench right away. Um, so I would imagine persistence has, has helped you tremendously and it's certainly a value that, that you value. So talk about how persistence has helped you uh, in your journey as a basketball coach. Well, I mean, it's, it, it's <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those things. It's not what happens to us. It's our interpretation of what happens to us that matters. So, you know, when I, when I was at University of Florida, you know, we were, you know, on the path to becoming really, really good. And we win the SEC championship. Uh, and then the next year, Coach Sloan is forced to resign. So now, all of a sudden now, <laughs> and it was on Halloween. <laughs> so so uh, it was the most shocking thing because we had had such a good year before. We had everybody coming back. And due to, you know, what was going on with every acronym in the world, the NCAA, the DEA, and I won't name the player, but... You know, it was there was some crazy stuff going on, and you know we were we were Norm was put into a box, so to speak, and he was he had he had to resign. So they they wanted, as in politics and as in coaching, a lot of times they wanted to start fresh, and so they asked me, you know, they said, Phil, we're we're going to need to have you resign also. So that was on that was in October, right? So the season just started. I've been a coach the last four years, you know, and. So now what, ha what do I do? And I have to, I have to tell you, Brian, that year may have been one of the most, uh, the, one of the biggest growth years of my life, having to deal with myself and, and to see what am I going to do? And I did have, I think the wherewithal to ask the question, you know, you know, how can I make this the best year of my life? And what I did that year was what a lot of, uh, coaches do when they're out or they just you know, they have they're getting paid by their team the next year but I didn't know any of this <laughs> I just I created my own university per se so I got to visit 16 different universities and I traveled the country and they they had paid me for the year but I had a northeast swing a southeast swing a midwest swing and you know uh, a west coast swing so uh I I persist that I wasn't going to be denied that so I was going to try to make something good out of that year. And I can't even tell you all the moments, but other places in my career, like when I was, I coached at Iona after uh, having a year in Chaminade university in Hawaii, I came back, I was, at, uh, I wasn't happy where I was in my career at Iona. 
So I would I would apply everywhere to bigger jobs and to do, I was trying to do everything. I was reading. I was studying the game. I was trying to become better at my player the, at all player development. I had so many rejection letters. <laughs> it was, I mean, I was that guy. And 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 whenever I got one back, I had a I had a standard line that I would always use. That's good. Why? And guess what? It's a question. You ask a great question, you're going to get a great answer. You ask a bad question, you're going to get a bad answer. So I always found some way in my mind to deal with what just happened. Whether where, I, I where, want to, where does that curiosity come from? Curiosity of, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I understand your question. So that's good. Why? The curiosity to learn, to grow, to improve, to get better. Well, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's just creating an empowering question. So something, see, and this is, this is kind of part of my, my thought process. I mean, two things can happen Two 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 of the same things can happen to two different people. So the same horrible thing happens to two different people, I guess is the best way to say, you know, one person may say, why did he have to do that to me? Well, guess what? You're going to get an answer. It's not a good answer. So you kind of go spiral down, right? Now, the same, this other person has nothing to do, but the same thing happened to that other person. He goes, or she goes, how can I grow from this? How can I make this in my life matter so I can, I can become better than I am right now? Well, those two different people handled the, that adversity totally different. So how did you cultivate that? In I'm assuming you're hoping to be person two. How did you cultivate that or where did you learn that that is a good approach? You know, I, <laughs> I wish I could. I wish I, I'm, I'm, I've been blessed my whole life uh, having had some, you know, my I, I'm, tremendous family background. Uh, my family is awesome. It matters everything to me. And uh, I went to a great high school, played for legendary Ed Vischer. He recruited me out of, you know, camp and played there. And uh, I've had so many great people who have put stuff in my mind. And I've also, you know, consumed many books and uh, reinforcing, I guess, an optimism. And uh, I, tr I, I try to experience it and, 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 and live it. You know, there's a cool story that I'll share with you. Uh, so Tom Watson and Greg Norman. Uh, Tom Watson's one of the all-time great major winners when it comes to the golf world. And Watson wasn't seen as a big, strong, athletic guy. He was, I think, five foot eight, um, but was seen as mentally just amazing. Uh, Norman, big, strong guy, could hit the ball like crazy and uh, really talented, but struggled in, in a lot of the majors, um, admittedly. And Watson had a caddy named Bruce Edwards for a number of years. They became best friends, best men at each other's weddings. And uh, as Watson started to decline, Norman was on the up. And uh, Norman reached out to Bruce Edwards, the caddy, and said, Bruce, I want you to come on my bag. And initially, Bruce didn't want to go on the bag because he had such a good relationship with Watson. But he talked to Watson. Watson said, there's a great opportunity for you. Norman's one of the top golfers in the world. Tons of potential. Uh, great gig for you. So he goes and works for uh, Norman for about three years. And after those three years, says, you know what? I miss working with Watson. I'm going to go back to work with Watson. Fast forward many years later, and Bruce Edwards has ALS. 
and uh, ends up dying. And after he passes away, there's an article that's published in, I think it's Golf Digest or one of the golf magazines uh, with stories from caddies. And in that magazine, there's a story where the writer had asked Bruce Edwards, the caddy, what's the difference between Tom Watson, this guy who definitely fulfilled his potential and is seen as mentally just really strong, and Norman, who had a good career but is not considered one of the all-time greats and struggled in majors. He said, all right, here's the deal. Greg Norman would hit the ball right down the fairway, great drive, and we'd walk up to the ball, and it would have landed in a divot. And he would turn to me and say, Bruce, can you believe my luck? Essentially saying, why me? Watson would do the same thing. He'd hit the ball down the fairway, great drive, walk up, it'd be in a divot. And he'd turn to Bruce and say, hey, Bruce, watch this. Watch what I'm going to do. One would say, why me? One would say, watch this. And that is what I think you're explaining to me is you get these rejection letters. Some people might say, why me? This is BS or I'm unlucky. And Phil, you, would say, all right, well, why is this going on? What what can I do? How can I? All right, good. This happened. Now, what am I going to do? So I think it's, it is a, the interpretation is so immensely valuable. And I love that you brought up interpretation because we can't control our thoughts. We can't control our feelings, but we can control the interpretation of the thoughts and feelings. And it it's just a massive, massive point of mindset. You mentioned that you would devour books. When did you start doing that? You know, early when I was at University of Florida, it's a funny story. And to me, it was because it was just like, whoa. So, all right. You know, if you if you I'm, I'm a coach, I was a player last year. Coach Sloan yells at me, you know, at University of Florida says, you still think like a player. And so I was evolving into my role. Right. So I want to I'm going to I'm going to be the best coach. I'm going to go get everything. So I go to the bookstore. Right? I don't know what books to buy. What, I mean, what, what, what am I going to buy to become the best basketball coach you can be? Right. So I, there's a book called it was peak performance. Right. So I'm like, that looks like the great book to go get. So I, I go get it. And I promise you, I was I was really gung-ho and tried to do it I wanted it it was like watching paint dry I just couldn't it just wouldn't it wasn't happening for me so it was funny the approach I guess I took because then another book I had picked up may have been you know very very similar time to that and it was called The Greatest Salesman in the World by Ogmandino and it's a little white little volume and so it was kind of a uh a story with the principles in it. And I'll tell you, I lived with that book for 10 months and it spawned in me just this kind of now all of a sudden one author led me to another author with led me to another author. So fast forward, I'm getting ready to move out of Gainesville, right? I just got, <laughs> just got let go. And I, and I look at this book that I'm just taking off that was totally all dust and right. And it's peak performance. So I'm like, what was so what was so rough with me? I mean, what was it? What was that? So I promise you, I'm like, okay, I got it. Yeah, I get that. I get that. I get. And I guess it was growth, right? Because I had gone on this this journey by uh, it, it took me a different path to get to that. And uh, so it, I can't tell you uh, how many books I've given out of, of the, the the greatest salesman and. To me, whenever I give it, 
I'm, I'm really corny sometimes. And I own, I own that. I own that. But I, I always recite a little couplet when I give it. And that little couplet is, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not from parents' brain, the fountain of wisdom. For shallow dross intoxicate the brain. And it is drinking largely that sobers us again. Because to me, and I am 100% belief of this, if you live with the book that I gave him, whoever that is, her, him, whoever, and you do as the scrolls instruct you to, it gets to where you are as far as what you do for a living helping people because you create a software of your mind by the scrolls and the positive affirmations. And it's, and it's <laughs> like, seriously, how can you argue against proper habits? Give me an argument against, I will greet this day for, with love in my heart for love is my weapon and love is my shield. Argue that one. Argue, I will persist until I succeed. For in the Orient, young bulls are tested for the fight arena in a certain manner. The bravery of each bull is tested with care according to sometimes tax the picador. It's verbatim. You read it 90 times, it becomes the software of your mind. So there are 10 traits in this book. And it has literally changed my life in so many different ways because of the way I react to things. You know, it's amazing. So just the peak performance book. So you reread that again and, and it made sense the second time now that you had gone through all these other books or am I listening to that wrong? You were, I, I didn't even need to read it. I was looking at the things and I went, I skimmed through it. Oh, come on. Well, how easy was this? Come on, come on. What was I, what was I, you know, an idiot back then? You know, it, I had, it had gone so, we had gone so fast past it. It was crazy. It's like the old adage. Uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will show up or, or something. Yeah. Like that is, I love that. I love, I love that one. You're right. I love that one. Awesome. So you fell in love with growth and this idea of learning and, and improving and habits and routine and affirmation and self-esteem and how you're showing up. Um, how did you end up showing up with the MBA? What was that, uh, transition into that world like for you? Well, I mean, the MBA has changed so much in the past, in the past, I would say 10 years. Uh, and what happened with me was, Oh, the college thing. And again, I promise you as, as God is my witness, I was trying to send out as many resumes. I was working on who I, my contacts, my recruiting contacts, the college thing just wasn't happening. And a buddy of mine kept trying to hire me for, he had an investment firm that represented professional athletes and entertainers. And he's like, Phil, leave, forget that. Just come work with me. Forget coaching. And I'm like, no, 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 Co I'm, no, I'm going to be a great coach the whole thing. So next year, same thing. Next year, the same thing. Finally, I listened, right? And the irony of it is I finally said, okay. So he flies me in to actually it was, he was in Lexington at the time. And, you know, in my, you know, I guess I'm 31 at the time, 32. And he's like, pulls up in this big Benz. And I'm like, I'm trying to make my rent, right? I'm trying <laughs> and he pulls up to this building. We go to this office building, 26 floors, one of those outdoor elevators, just a magnificent building. We go up on that elevator in the top. He says, Hey, when we were playing on all those teams going around the world, did you ever think I'd own a building like this? Hmm. Brian, I had a paradigm shift. <laughs> so I said, okay, let me listen. Right. So so I make the I make the plunge and guess what? 
it's pretty relevant right now because what he found was that in his research and he had legal background and he studied the, he knew the NCA rules and he found that there was a loophole, so to speak, in the NCA rules that, that allowed, didn't allow agents to sponsor high school All-American trips, but would allow financial companies to do that. And that's what he was. So I leave college coaching and the first team, I'm, I'm, I'm coaching a team of high school All-Americans like less than two months later. And on that team was Baron Davis, Ricky Davis, Jason Capono, Dean Oliver, Chris Burgess, who were all great, great high school players. And uh, it was, it was, uh, it started me off. And another thing that really uh, changed my life was moving to Los Angeles for a multitude of reasons. But uh, because Baron and I were the only ones on that trip that lived in LA. And uh, it was so funny how it happened. But Baron, I told Baron, Baron, hey, I can help you. Let's get into a gym. We'll work. We'll do some work, right? So we went up, and there's something, some days you just never forget. And so we meet at the old men's gym at UCLA, and Baron and I are walking up. These antiquated stairs where Coach Wooden used to have all his practices, and we opened this door, and I promise you, there were 30 NBA guys playing pickup games. I never knew there was such a place that existed. It was like, wait a minute. It was like my mind was going racing because I'm seeing all these people I've seen on you know TV and watching games. Magic was holding court on the middle court, and it was like, are you kidding me? So fast forward, uh, and basically three years, I had worked with over 100 guys in the NBA and you know, it was different back then because no, not everybody, not nobody did it. So you, you really became a, a, a skill development or a player development guy. People would come to, to work on their game in the off season or walk people through what that would look like. Well, it, 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 it kind of evolved to be quite honest. It started with a couple guys. Lloyd Vaught was one of my guys. He was a starting forward for the Clippers at the time. And Brent Barry was in some of my workouts and it was never, it was never a paid thing. I just volunteered it. Right. And, uh, the guy who I, I worked with, uh, Brett Barrett called it, you know, he called me an, an investment coach because he, because my passion took me to the court more than anything else. Uh, but it got to a point where, uh, especially around draft time, pre-draft workouts were ridiculous because I worked with, you know, four of the major agents in LA just carving out time for their for their prospects getting them ready for the workouts that I, I I've you know I've run as being a coach in the NBA and then there would be those other in the, then there'd be the guys coming back after the season and every once in a while there'd be some guys uh and during the NBA season I actually I mean Lisa Leslie She's been one of my, she was one, she, I would take some European guys who would come back in town. They would call me up and I would just go, it was really informal, but you know, all my workouts, I, you know, I, I, I kind of had a code, you know, I never wanted more than five, six, absolutely top was the number because of the level of intensity. And, uh, it was great. And, and the, the most important thing that they gave me the opportunity to work with them, I learned probably more. I took from the relationships probably more than I gave. And so, but it's an interesting 
example because now, like I know Rob McClanahan, Arntellum hired for a number of years to be in-house to work with these guys. You had Idan Ravine, um, who ended up working with a lot of guys. He started with Steve Francis at, at University of Maryland and then at Carmelo and a lot of other guys. Uh, you've got Drew Hanlon, who works with Joel Embiid and Jason Tatum. So skill development, like it's guys do this for a living. I mean, I'm, I'm not even naming Abnistar. I mean, there, there's guys after guys that have done this, but you were doing it for free. Why didn't you at that point just say, man, I could charge these guys X amount of dollars and, and start a business? I had a couple beliefs at the time. I think that, uh, A, you know, I was developing relationships and I was learning. So I was, ga- like I said, I was gaining, I was gaining and, you know, uh, it's, it was a funny thing in that it, uh, it, it just kind of evolved where I walk into that UCLA's gym. I promise you, I was, what was so amazing about it was anybody who's been to universities knows how they will ask you for two different forms of ID, your passport. And it, 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 nobody checked. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, look at this. We just, I just walked in here and fast forward you know, those three years, I would walk into the gym. Hey, coach, you need anything? You want <laughs> So uh, I just, I just was, I migrated to, to the work for these great athletes. I was just, I, I felt honored that I was able to do that. And I really was learning from them. A uh, funny, a funny thing, Arn, uh, he was one of the guys that I would work with. I mean, it was Arn, it was Jeff Schwartz, it was Dan Fagan, Bill Duffy's guys I would work out sometimes. Uh, so it was, you know, who Aaron got after I left? Well, <laughs> you know, the Portland trailblazers. Sure. Who's their president? <laughs> I think I know, but I, who is it? Come on now. You can get, you can get, oh, I put you on the spot. I mean, I'm about to say a name, but I, I'd rather you just tell me. No, no, no. It it was one of the uh, what well, he became the guy who replaced me became the president of the Portland Trailblazers, and the next guy is they they bred them. Now I'm I'm drawing a blank. How about how funny are we? We're we're watching this. We, so you talking about the Blazers now? Yeah. Is it Neil Olshey? That's the one yeah Neil O'Shea. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. He was right now. Well, I he, thought you were talking about like. Like oh no! I, I didn't put it. I didn't put it in context. So, yeah. so when I left, Neil O'Shea became the guy who did it, and then he became part of the Clippers. And what I'm, my point being, it people started to see that that worked, that 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 was the way to go. So, uh, I I, I got to be honest with you. It was uh, I had no idea how it was going to happen for me. And, uh, when people hear the story, I don't think they necessarily really believe that, you know, uh, it did happen like that because I went from out of the NBA to the bench. of the yeah. Before you get to the bench, I mean, in a lot of ways, you're just ahead of your time. Um, because I, I just see it now when we talk about skill development or player development, first of all, there are tons of examples of guys who were doing what you did after you did it uh, and that are doing it today. But, um, one of the stories that you told me that I would love to just have you share with our listeners is when a 19 year old super competitive, uh, guy, uh, walks into your gym and, 
uh, Kobe and your experience with him. And I feel like anyone that's interacted with Kobe in the NBA has a Kobe story. It's, it's pretty unreal. It's just like everyone's, <laughs> I had Laurent Prophet on here and he had a Kobe story when he played with Kobe. Um, what, give, give, give everyone your Kobe story. Well, I mean, it was after his rookie year and, you know, he, he, every, he didn't just launch on there and he wasn't, you know, he did, wasn't an all-star and all that. He, struggled shooting the ball a little bit and you know Arn just wanted me to work with his shot so uh we we spent you know uh we we would be the he would be my first workout I'd have other workouts and he would be my first one it was not whatever time eight o'clock whatever and I would always have an, a two other workouts whether it be at 10 and noon and what was so amazing about him was uh he would come in, he would be locked in, laser focused. You could see his eyes and he was open to everything, everything. And when you're working with someone shooting, you can, you can humble them in certain ways. I don't care how good you are. You can humble them in certain things that you can do to get their attention. And he went through everything. And I think he saw some progress and I think he got a little excited and I would have a workout with some other guys would be showing up as we're ending. Right. So he goes, Hey, can I jump in? I go, of course, of course. And cause there wasn't six, you know, it'd be however many numbers. So he would stay. And then another group of guys would be coming when that workout was over. And he would ask, can I, and he, and he stayed. He, so he was there for however many hours. And this continued on for, for eight straight days. I mean, he, he, we went straight cause he was getting ready for summer league. And so, it was, it was, you know, I'm, I'm, we're saying kind of our goodbyes because now, okay, this was kind of the time that we had. And now you're going to be going back to the Lakers and all that. And, uh, summer league starts in two days, taking a day off, whatever. I don't think he took a day off, but so I can tell you the spot we're walking out, we're walking out of the old men's gym and where it's right in front of, uh, the, the school, the campus store and the bear is right there. And, um, I look at Kobe and I promise you, I just said, Kobe, you know, your work ethic is absolutely amazing. If, if I may be speaking the obvious, but if you continue to work like this, you're going to be one of the best players to ever play the game. He almost stopped me mid sentence and his look of conviction in his eyes when he said, no, I am going to be the best. Now this was after a, you know, he was young he had a good year, but not a great first year. And But the level of conviction, the level of dedication that he had was, was crazy. So I will tell you this. So fast forward, fast forward, I get hired by the Phoenix Suns. First year, we, we were able to beat San Antonio in the first round and able to get by them. But we're looking at the Lakers. We're Shaq and company, right? And... Kobe hits a hits a turnaround jump shot with Jason Kidd draped all over him in one of the games at LA, game two of LA. So instead of going back one one, we go back two oh with, you know, just disheartened and just the morale just ugh, you know, he gave one away, but Kobe hit that sucker. And so they end up winning the championship. 
So my season's over. I had lived in L.A. I go back to L.A. just to see some friends. A buddy of mine was the GM of the Gold's Fitness uh, in uh, Venice, Venice Gold's. And I got my flight was later. So I go in there. This is a week after Lakers had just cut down the nets and stuff. I'm going to go get a workout in, you know, just knock, it, knock one out. Didn't get a chance that day. I go in there. Eight o'clock at night, one week after Lakers had just cut down the nets, and there's Kobe just fully lathered, been probably been in there for like two hours, just getting better. Come on. <laughs> Come on. There's no surprise. There's no surprise. So it's so awesome. And uh, you know, I think what made Kobe special is uh, he had that humble preparation to put the work in, wake up early, do the work. And then he had the arrogance to say, I'm going to be the greatest. And, uh, you know, that, th that polarity, that, that ability to humbly prepare, but arrogantly perform, uh, show me, show me a great performer that doesn't have both of those. Um, it's, it's really at the core. It's interesting. Yesterday, I, I read an article about Jimmy Garoppolo, uh, who's now the San Francisco 49ers quarterback. And before that, he was Tom Brady's understudy. And he was pretty open about it. And uh, I know the person that I actually saw the article from on Twitter was criticizing Garoppolo because in the article, Garoppolo was saying, you know, I believed that I was at that point better than Brady. Like, I believed I should have been playing above him. And, you know, I had the confidence that I'm going to take his job. And, you know, I think a lot of us hear that and think like, dude, what's wrong with you? Like, just, just sit back and learn, just, just take it all in. But no, Garoppolo believes in himself that much that he thinks he he's better than Brady. And uh, that, that arrogance, um, I find people struggle with that more than they struggle with the humility uh, because our society says, be humble. And from a young age, our educational system tries to humble us. And um, arrogance is seen as a negative uh, in, our, in our society. We, we make fun of arrogance. And the other thing with arrogance is if you do it and you fail, there's potential shame and embarrassment there. If you do humility and you fail, there's not that much to lose. And certainly I don't want our society to be arrogant everywhere. But if you blend arrogance with humility, man, then you have a reason to be arrogant. And so, uh, you know, I, I just think when I look at Kobe, I think, look, I, I study all these great performers and, you know, I love studying Jordan and I love studying LeBron in basketball, but Kobe's polarities of his mind, um, the ability to say, I'm going to win this championship. And then the week later to be at Gold's gym, um, is, is really just special. And then also if you hear him talk and interviewed how he thought about the game and how he thought the game was on such a genius level. It's just, if anyone wants to study mindset for performance, I just highly encourage them. Kobe now is really being open and speaking a lot and doing podcasts and uh, you can certainly listen to him. And uh, so anyway, I just love that you have a Kobe story and um, it, it speaks to what I've, learned about him and as i study him yeah he, he's he, there's you know unfortunately he was on another team you know he was his and and i and i think you know i think that that probably and i i guess now they've openly said it was part of the part of the riff with Shaq, you know because he was so 
so prep prepared and worked so hard and you know and 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 Shaq just it's hard to get to that level and if you lose and you and you're not doing what he's doing it's like what are you doing he just can't understand he just can't understand it and what's really interesting about Shaq is Shaq from a performance standpoint was fearless he was arrogant he you know was adaptable other than when he was on the free throw line you know Shaq was never really scared of of the of the moment, at least from an outside perspective. But what Shaq did not have was that preparation mindset to do all that hard work. And I found there are a number of NBA basketball players who are really good at that performance mindset, but struggle with the preparation. I'll, I'll name a few from just my perspective. Like Allen Iverson is the one that's obvious, but I look at Tracy McGrady and, you know, McGrady, Iverson and Kobe came in at around the same time. McGrady might've been the most physically gifted of those. However, Iverson, if anyone watched Iverson up close, there was never anybody that could go from slow to fast, the speed yeah. that Iverson had. So they're all gifted in their own ways. But you look at Kobe's longevity of greatness compared to Iverson and McGrady. Um, and I think Iverson and McGrady, when the lights were on, they brought it. I mean, they, they weren't scared. Iverson competed his ass off. But did they have the meticulousness, the perfectionism? Um, and I know you spent some time with Ray Allen, who's notorious for the perfectionism. You know, we we're, I'd love to talk about Steve Nash, you know, who would make sure that he was doing things the right way with his footwork. Um, so I think when you combined the mindset for preparation with the mindset for performance, that's when greatness starts to come out. Um, but I was curious for you, you got to spend time around a Mike D'Antoni you got to spend a lot of time around Eric's Polstra. I know you have a story with John Wooden. So talk about some of the coaches that you got to be around um, throughout your professional coaching career that would inspire you or make you think the game a little differently. Well, I mean, that year, and I had alluded to it earlier, just when uh, University of Florida way back early in my career was – you know, all of a sudden now I'm now I'm I don't have a job and I'm I'm gonna make my own university and I, one of the trips was a, a Western trip so I'm out at UCLA and I'd gone to four of their practices and uh, their coaches were friends of mine and uh, Mark Godfrey gets me tickets to the game and I'm waiting and <laughs> I'm traveling around the so there's Coach Wooden <laughs> I'm like. Phil, you idiot. Just go talk to him. Come on, man. And I had to wait online. I was like third in line to go to go see to go see the wizard, right? So uh I go up and I introduce myself as you know, a college coach and just traveling around the country to learn as much about the game. And I asked, I said, Coach, it would be the highlight of my trip if I could spend some time with you. And uh, you know, he gave me his telephone number and told me to call him on Monday. It was Saturday and it was amazing. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm floating at that time. So, uh, so I call him up probably 10 o'clock, you know, and I don't want to wake him up. He'd probably been up by five hours and I go coach Phil Weber. Hey, uh, would love to come you know, talk to you a little bit. He said, sure, Phil, come on over about one o'clock. So I'm like, Oh my gosh. So, you know, and uh, what am I going to ask him? So now I had to really you know, you, you're good at your job. All right. <laughs> this is what you're good at your job. I have to, I got to figure out what I'm going to ask. So I'm, you know, so I can really sincerely learn about stuff. So it made me think differently, even going into the whole thing. So I hopped in my rent a car and, you know, 
as I usually say, the music was on, but I couldn't hear it. All I could hear was, I'm off to see the wizard. <laughs> and the man was the most articulate and learned man I've ever met. And I mean, and since having gone through that, I basically have heard countless stories, uh, just like you have, everybody has a Kobe story. Coaches have Coach Wooden stories. And, you know, he just made things so real to me as far as coaching being more of a teacher and how you have to, you know, you like, and again, he, he would often quote poems. And I used one earlier, but, you know, no, another one he would always use is no written word or spoken plea can teach the youth what they ought to be, nor all the books on all the shelves, but it's what the teachers are themselves. And if you think, if you look back and any time you analyze anything about Coach Wooden, he was always known as, you know, it, you know, you talk about, you know, two different people during a game, he was rolled up and he was feisty and all that kind of stuff. You hear stories about that, but always respectful, but off the court and stuff, he was the most giving, honest and, you know, faithful, God loving man that you could ever, you could ever, ever have. It's amazing. So I mentioned Kobe and I think of when you think of a coach who had a mindset, a special mind, you, you'd certainly think of Coach Wooden. And you know it's special when a lot of companies and corporate use this pyramid or I go to places that they don't really know much about sports, but they know about Coach Wooden. And actually just yesterday, I have a 17-year-old female athlete and she was struggling with success. Uh, you know, what is success? What is failure? Um, you know, and, and I sent her Coach Wooden's TED Talk where he defines success you know, as peace of mind, you know, knowing that he did the best with what he's got. I'm paraphrasing that, but, um, you know, there's so much wisdom in, in John Wooden. And I think that wisdom and maximizing are two separate things. And sometimes our greatest maximizers are not our wisest people. And sometimes our wisest people are not our greatest maximizers. And so to combine the success that he had at UCLA, which was unprecedented, is maximizing with the wisdom that he had and shared with the world is that's greatness. That's, that's pretty special stuff. And what people really don't, when you think of coach Wooden, you think of the 10 titles, but when did he win his first? Didn't win it until he's 65 years old. <laughs> A lot of losing. <laughs> there was, you know, and what he said was he never was really considered a loser. Cause there were some conference tournaments, conference championships, but it wasn't until he started to win a lot that there was ever any question to, to him not being, and, and it's standards. It's, you know, what we're used to, you, you know, you build up that appetite, everybody, you want more, you want more, you want more, but he was never about that. He was always about the process. You don't skip steps. You, it's all about the process. Yeah. It's, it's so cool. And coach K was 37 and 45, his first three seasons at Duke. I mean, we do. And it's, it's, some, it's something that we need to remember in this society that we live in today that moves so fast. I mean, we take in so much more information than, than, we, than we did. I, I read a stat once that we take in as much information in two days that the, the con, sorry, there's more content produced in two days in our world than all of eternity until 2005. That's crazy. Like we are. We have become just content producing machines, hence my ability to fire up a podcast and just produce content. Um, and there, it's a beautiful time to be alive because there's so much content 
mm-hmm. but it's really important that we try to find the quality and yeah. uh it, it's just what filters can we create to try to create quality because the abundance does not mean that it's better and so wood is such a good example that just because it's years ago it's still quality um and just because there's a million coaching books doesn't mean that uh they're they're all of quality so um, I love that. Take me to being around people like D'Antoni and Spolstra. So from the outside looking in, my perspective on D'Antoni is innovator, uh, somebody that played the game at a faster rate um, than teams might have been playing at before him. Um, and I say innovator instead of inventor because I think an inventor creates something from scratch. I think he really innovated from other people. Um, and then I look at Spolstra as somebody with the Miami heat who they are known for their culture and uh, him and Pat Riley uh, are known for having a culture in Miami, but I'm curious what your experience was like and and what you might've learned from, from both those guys. Just, you know, Mike is brilliant in his interpretation of what's going on. And, you know, he, he sees the big picture, great talent evaluator, understands how to maximize and get the most out of all of that. And, you know, we started off working together as assistants. He came into Phoenix as an assistant and later took over. And, you know, uh, I'll tell you, before 0405, that season where, you know, we had won 29 games. Now, granted, we had Steve Nash, which was monumental to what we were going to. It was just huge to what we were going to do. But it was also Mike's interpretation of what our team looked like. And, you know, we just, our training camp, you know, we put the audacity of of us to put the five best players on the floor at the same time. I mean, come on. What do you mean? So now, granted, it wasn't prototypic, right, at the time. It was not. It wasn't, you know, we, we, we're not going to, we're not going to put a big old, because Amari Stoudemire should have been a size wise at the time. And what he did would have been a, would have been a power forward, a four, you know, in the league's numbers, you know, Sean Marion, there's no way he was going to be a power forward. So by shifting that and putting the best five players we have out, you know, it, it kind of caught people by surprise. And what was so funny about that year was, that first year, we couldn't use our to go over and show the team the next because you play a team. Sometimes you play a team four times. Sometimes you play them twice. Depends. We couldn't use the first go around. We were thirty-one and four, and we had beaten the teams by like twenty-five and thirty. So you flash the the game clips of the old of the opponent you're going to play from the last game, and and they were like we were just hammering them, but. It, we, it just caught people by surprise. People thought we were going to slow down in like this, the third quarter. And we just... <laughs> and, and you know what's so bizarre? Is the pace of the game then and the pace of the game now. We would be ranked like 25th. We would be ranked like 25th. And so the crazy part about it, the audacity again. And Jack McCallum spent a year with us in 05, 06, you know, when we when he wrote the book Seven Seconds or Less. But, you know, the the audacity to take the first open shot. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, seriously, you're open, you're balanced, 
Oh, okay. So who cares when it is in the shot clock? It's an open, balanced shot. Come on. What but are you doing? genius, genius is simple. Genius is often simple. And I'm telling you, it was. And you know what happened? You know, again, we were we had the best engine in the NBA. Steve Nash, for he did it with the Mavs. Him and Dirk, they 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 scored right. But we just put we just threw some gasoline on it even more with more speed, and what happened? So it was it was just an amazing it was an amazing time and uh, and and we kept we kept it simple. Our, our and one of the other things that that we I think that that Mike really had an understanding for and I learned from him was, you know, so many so many coaches I think tend to overcoach in the fact. You want to you want to build foundation defensively. It's got yeah, got to play defense. And he gets he gets hammered for not coaching defense. We work defense every every day, you know. But you'll see it you'll see it throughout the league. If their if their roster changes, well, guess what? You got to try to maximize the roster. The last time I checked, and this was one of Mike's brother came to us, started joined our staff, and. He was a great coach in South Car- in South Carolina in a high school, and he just made the national stage with Marshall. He was he did such a good job at University of Marshall that he he would say that the team that scores the most points played the best defense. <laughs> <laughs> so I want you to argue that on that day, you know you you can't argue that. So I think the way the Mike Mike created or. It, it was also definitely Steve Nash had a huge imprint, and I've mentioned his name a lot. But Mike wanted to—he didn't want to go three-hour practices. We would go in, and we the the level of our competition and practices, and we would compete a lot. The intensity was crazy, and it would be sometimes we would practice for forty-five minutes, but the level of intensity was just all out. And if you saw how we played. That's how it was. So that resonates with me so much. So my theory is mindset for preparation different than performance. But practice is different. Practice should be be about simulating the performance, simulating the pressure, the intensity. That's where you build that performance mindset. And so a great performer needs to understand. I think football actually does a really good job of this, right? So football... They prepare, they watch film, they go over all of the X's and O's. It's it's monotonous, it's boring, but they do such a thorough job on the preparation. And then practicing, you know, they used to go full pads and really go at it, but practicing should be about, all right, now you're going to execute it at full speed. You know, you're going to hit your spot, you're going to do this, and we're going to try to simulate things. So I, to me, there's a distinction between preparation and practice. Preparation is the acquisition of skills, knowledge, technique. Um, I would imagine Steve Nash is on his own doing footwork, doing drills to try to finish in the lane off one foot, two, you know, two feet, right foot, left foot, following through with his jumper. He's he's constantly perfecting, humbling, asking why and being curious. That mindset is different than what the practice mindset needs to be. The practice mindset is saying, this is what it's going to be like. Let's make this so hard that the games feel easy. Um, and, and and that's what I'm hearing from you as far as what your practices would look like. Correct me if I'm if I'm going wrong. There's, there's no question. And let me just tell you a huge point. 
a huge point that a lot of people, you know, I don't know if, they, you know, a lot of coaches, I, I'm sure know, some don't know, is that the trust, the trust from your players is everything. So therefore, they have to trust you to know because practice is different. So they have to trust that if they give it like they're going to give it in a game, you're not going to go four hours because you can't. So that level of trust is unbelievable. So that, that comes over time where you develop that. And, you know, I, I, I don't think I can overstate that. One of the things that's popped up in my head that I'm really curious about. So there's two transitions. There's a transition for you uh, from being a player at a great university like NC State and then transitioning to becoming a coach on the bench at a big time school like Florida. And then there's another transition where you go from working these guys out to being an assistant coach in the best league in the world. How did you get your mind to where it needed to be to say, yeah, I can do these jobs? Uh, first and foremost, you know, the, I guess belief in myself because I've, I was able to get there, you know, and <laughs> I know that I had the respect of the players. I don't think I would have got to the league if they, people didn't know that the guys that I worked with didn't respect what I brought every day. And I had to live that. I had to, I mean, I had to bring it. I mean, and let me tell you when I became, when I got into the NBA, first my my dad go I was coaching there a, a whole two months he said are you sure they can't fire you at some point I'm saying I'm sure they can but I don't know I don't know if they're gonna because it was kind of out of coaching to the bench was 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 crazy and I you know I took a I took a um, couple pages again I, I recommend you know any kind of Covey Stephen Covey work because I just think from a foundational perspective it's so huge and I I just was always it was always my goal to be proactive and by being proactive I would have to take on you know whatever role I could and try to expand it and keep expanding whenever I can so I yes I would you know it was funny now you see four or five or six player development guys on every roster traveling around. I was on that floor for games. There was nobody. I, I come on. I mean, there was some some of the some of the older coaches would would rebound or pass, but you know I was usually on there for. I, I would go through like ten, eleven guys. You know because it was it wasn't it wasn't prevalent at the time. So. Danny Ainge hires me out of the blue, watches one workout, and I was, it was crazy. It was kind of go out again, just, you know, what would you do to, what, what would, what can I do in compensation to get you on my staff was words that have echoed through my, you know, my mind for the last 18 years. But so he, he up and resigns on December 13th. That's crazy of my first year, right? So he gets me in. The, he gets me in. He sees it. He, I guess, and I, I, I owe him. He's amazing. He's, he's one of the most forward thinkers in the game that there is, and you've seen it since with the with the Celtics. But so now Scott Skiles takes over. Now Scott is old school and pure, and one of the best basketball minds I've ever been around defensively. And I mean, you know, the simplicity, and he focused on defense, and we were top five defensively the first two years in the league. So I wanted to matter during the game. 
So my first year, uh, I took a proactive approach and I started charting our offense because I looked around and no one else was doing it. So I'm like, what, how can I, how can I help? And I think that really helped, you know, what happened later for me because I stuff, when you start focusing on something where uh, you mentioned it earlier, we're, we're, we're hammered by so many different things in our, in our minds, but we are deletion creatures. So therefore, you know, we could be walking in a room together. I'll see something and you don't totally, you don't, you're looking the same direction. You don't see it. And I've started focusing on offensive actions. It's amazing. I, I, I had Eric Mangini on the podcast and Eric uh, was the head coach of the New York Jets and, and the Cleveland Browns. But how Eric got his start was he was a ball boy for the Cleveland Browns and then went to work in PR because they had an internship. So he just was like, oh, I'll just stick around. And he kept sticking around and he kept just trying to find ways to add value to the team, add value, help, stay late, work his ass off to the point where Bill Belichick saw him and said, all right, I'll give you an opportunity. Like, you know, do this job. And from then on, he would just try to find ways to help. And we met in Las Vegas, the two of us. And I was there for a conference where there was about 300 uh, young people who all wanted to get into basketball front offices. And I would talk to them and say, hey, what are you looking to do? Why? And all of them, not all, but most of them would say, yeah, you know, I just want to find someone to open a door for me to work in a, in a front office. And my advice to them was to say, instead of thinking about how they can help you, think about how you can help them. And what I'm hearing from you is the same thing I was hearing from Eric. And it was, I was just trying to find a way to help the team and add value and whatever I could do, if it was charting offense and doing that or, or getting in line and working guys out on the court, 11 guys, you know, Eric, Eric talked about in Cleveland, they had guys who ended up being groundskeepers who now are general managers in the NFL. You know, he was a ball boy. And he ended up working his way up. We're going to talk about Spolstra. Spolstra was a video coordinator, right? Like, so find ways to add value for those of you that are listening. And I'm no expert at this. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out how to add value to the people that I serve. But it's something that I'm always thinking about is how can I help? Um, how can I help you rather than the other way? How can they help me? And if you can listen and use your eyes to actually take in like, all right, what are they missing here? Where's their gap? Where is there something that maybe I can do that will help? Then all of a sudden you're valuable. And so it's it's just fascinating. Your approach is eerily similar to Eric Mangini's. Eerily similar. It's it's just interesting to hear the two of you talk about it. One of one of the phrases that I that I that you know runs through my mind also is all jobs are answers to problems. You know, so just again, if you look, listen, you're gonna see. And then you just, if you kind of work to do whatever you can and, and you know, that there's a, there's a, I, I can't show it. It's a, it's an audio, but there's a, there, the circles of the, in Covey, he has something that I showed every single player basically that I've coached. And if you can go with me, you know, with the diagram in your mind, uh, there's an outer circle, there's an outer circle and uh, there's a smaller inner circle. Okay. So now the inner circle is your circle of influence. Okay. So it's everything that you have 100% control over 
Now, just outside of that, you have that other little circle, that other circle that's around it. Everything on the outside of that inner circle is your circle of concern. Those are the weather. This is your schedule. These are your coworkers. This, you have no control over those. Zero. Absolutely zero. So for those successful people, all they focus on is their circle of influence. Because if you focus outside of your circle of influence, that put, so let's, let's give it a number. Okay. Let's give, let's give that small little circle in the middle of that 10 and the outer circle is around it. If you focus outside of that inner circle, the pressures on the outside, it shrinks. But if you only stay inside that inner circle, you just stay there. You, you can't keep pulling up the flowers to see if the roots are growing. You got to stay because you know the other, if you stay there, eventually things will start opening up. And it's like, let's, let, let's use a game. Let's use a player because sometimes I've had some emotional players. Let's say outside that small circle is the officials, is the, is the travel schedule, is other players, is coaches even so. And if they're focusing on the refs, if they're focusing on, oh, this is a brutal schedule, they're focusing on what they really can control. So their world becomes smaller. But for those really, really locked in Kobe's, they are so lasered in on that influence and what they can do that their world grows. And pretty soon, guess what happens? Their world gets bigger. That outer circle gets out and gets bigger. Man, two thoughts. One, I had on a guy on this podcast, Josh Basil, who's paralyzed uh, in a, you know, a boogie board accident at the beach when he's 19 years old and only has use of his left arm or his right arm, his right arm. And he says, I just focus on what I can do, not on what I can't do. I know there are things I can't do. You know, they're, they're always going to be that way, but I just try to lock in onto what I can do. And then the other thing is you're talking about Kobe. I think of the Kobe Bryant scene where Matt Barnes is inbounding a ball and he takes the ball and tries to fake like he's throwing it at Kobe's face and Kobe just stands there in a Zen-like, <laughs> zen-like pose. And Kobe's been interviewed about it since and Kobe basically says like, yeah, I know he's not going to throw it at me. Like he throws that at me, he gets kicked out of the game. Um, you know, he's the only guy that can kind of guard me on their team, you know, so he's just not going to do it. And, uh, the way he could process that in that moment and to not be afraid because he knew that that's out of the influence, um, of, of what he can do. I love that diagram and that image is so crisp and clear. So thank you for sharing. Cause I've never heard that before. Very the, clear. You know, there, there are some things that I, I think are like life's golden nuggets. And I think that uh, kind of correlates to, uh, you know, what we think about grows, what we think about grows. If you're, if you're solution driven, you know, guess what? That's where your mind's going to be and some stuff's going to pop in. It's also that other person who asked the empowering question. So it all goes together. The whole mindset goes together. Now, if you focus on problems, guess what? You're, you're, it's not going to be good. You're just, you're, what's wrong with this? And it's, it's just, I don't understand that mindset. You, you don't have to get into specific players with me, but if you had an emotional player and you showed him something like that, what was the response typically of, of those players? They see it. They see it. 
And it's hard to argue against the diagram. That's why I use the diagram. It's so powerful. It's so powerful because it's it shows you in a very and I use it because I'm uh, again I've been blessed with the people that have been in my life and allowed me to work with them and all that kind of stuff because that happened to me because I I went from out of I was out of coaching I was out of coaching but I stayed in my inner circle and all I I, I did what I could control well guess what I'm, I have this job that allows me freedom so I can work with players if I want and I just started working with players and so so. I just stayed there long enough, and I and so you know you you have a picture of the two circles, right? Have that picture of your two circles. Well, finally, you know, my world got bigger. So put a third circle way around there, and I and I and I became I was blessed to become a coach in the NBA, and it was just because I think I stayed true to you know trying to always improve and trying to give away, uh, you know, whatever I could because I think that's powerful if. You know, if you reach a certain level of expertise, eventually the compensation matches the expert, uh, expertise. And the other one is if you give without any expectation of receipt, I think magic happens. That's beautiful. Do you want to talk about the heat a little bit um, and, and just give some perspective? Uh, you Look, you've been on championship, been involved in championships, uh, NC State, which we didn't even really unhash and we don't have to unpack too much, but they had this amazing miracle run where where they won a championship uh and you were red shirted um but talk about championship culture any similarities that you saw in, in and look i think the phoenix suns when you were there that's a championship team just because they didn't win the championship i, I think they're they're a championship caliber team so talk about qualities that you notice uh with with championship caliber teams well i i think that you know to go back to co- where we started almost with coach v uh just belief, you know, uh, just I, the one, the one big, the one big neon sign to me with, uh, what happened with us at NC state. And again, I'm two trivia questions in the annals of NC state history. Who's the four scholarship player to Sidney Lowe, Derek Wittenberg and Thurl Bailey, Phil Weber. And then who's the other, then the other one is who's the only idiot to be red shirting the year they win the national championship. <laughs> so, but that, but that year before the championship, we lost so many close games, game after game of one and two. We were in every game, had a good record, not a great one. And something crazy started happening. You can go back to the records. We were the first team to ever win a championship uh, in, in the NCAA with double-digit losses. So all of a sudden, mid later, you know, kind of almost midway through the season, we started winning. We, we came back from five. Then the next game we were down, you know, four. We bang a couple shots, bang, bang. We win. So now we've strung together three or four. So all of a sudden now, it was a it was a comfortable. We're okay. We there's and and everybody else started to started to feel the other the opponents started to feel it. They this is what they do. They come back. And it was so crazy what happened. And I'm telling you, there's something there's something natural about that thought when one opponent thinks that the other one is this is what they do there's something unbelievable about that because that the, the nickname was the cardiac pack i mean there's horror stories from coaches that careers were changed because of crazy comebacks guys pepperdine jim herrick he is haunted by that game haunted because 
one of his players who had made 23 free throws in a row misses two, two free throws. I mean, it's just crazy uh, that mind, that just that understanding and belief. I mean, it goes back to one of the oldest poems that's ever written on sports, and it's called Think. And the crux of it is victory does not go to the fastest or strongest man, but the man who knows he can. And it's that it's that power of belief. And when you can raise that belief to a conviction, I mean, that's I mean, that's you know, you talked about the preparation all that factors in. But the NC State one, that that one is, you know, just so powerful to me. Yeah, belief is is massive. And um, I think our beliefs tend to come from the stories we tell ourselves and the dialogue we have with ourselves. And, but when you see that in a collective form, no oh man, like the new England Patriots, when they're down to the Atlanta Falcons, like that's just belief and nobody else is believing in them. I live in Washington DC and uh, the caps this year, the, the hockey team, like they just, it was different when they were down in the past, they'd be up and you'd be like, ah, oh, it's not happening. You know, the Boston Red Sox, when they broke through, uh, with David Ortiz and those guys, it was just, there's something different and magical. And I don't know if it's the universe or if it's a collective belief and how you, how you bring that collective belief out in each other is, is just incredible. And sports, you just see it. Michael Phelps at the Olympics, like you would just see him believe like, no, I'm going to touch the wall first tiger in his prime. Like you see tiger. Oh, I'm going to win. Um, and when you have that belief, it, it's it's hard to crush, and when you don't, it's hard to manifest. Um, no question, no question. Uh, just uh, with the heat and being around some of those guys who are, are legendary, any experiences or observations that you notice there that that resonate? Well, just you know, and again, I was I work with 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 Spo most of the. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't around until I coached the uh, the Sioux Falls team where I was there. Uh, that I was that I was in practices and with all those guys and but just to be around that culture to be around that culture is to understand that you know their values their core values are so important to them and it's a day to day to day it's not a it's not something that you just have it's something that is always worked on. And I, and I read a book and, you know, you, you read these different books and if you get one golden little thought out of it, that adds a layer to what, you know, it's, it's magical. And when I saw, uh, I'm trying to, uh, it's, it was in one of Sean Acor's books or his wife's book. I can't remember which, cause I, I read them all very similarly about the before happiness. I think it was broadcast happiness. And when, he mentions that all culture is, is stories perpetually told about the people and what their lives are on a regular basis. But it's stories. What is culture? A culture is, hey, guess what? When you go to Miami, you're, everybody takes pictures for this iPad. Look at these transformations page after page after page. It's, you know, Udonis Haslam is going to go down. His number is going to be up in the rafters. And guess what? Because he has, he, he embodies what the heat culture is. He's a, 
He's a poster child, and this is why. They'll be, he will not have played for six weeks or whatever. I'm using an arbitrary number. Who knows? But his every single day, he was one of the first people in there. Worked harder than anybody. Worked to improve his game. Every single day. Wasn't getting a, wasn't getting a second. All of a sudden now, big game. Foul trouble, whatever injury, whatever the situation, he's called upon. And he's able to get and make plays, winning plays, whatever, even if it's just a rebound here or whatever. And it's it's putting a uh, a broadcast light on that. And it's not about what the stars did that day. The first thing, in, and, you know, he's, he's a Hall of Fame coach. Suppose, suppose like Coach Riley, you're going to be a Hall of Fame coach. I mean, he's amazing at what he does. He's listening. He's growth mindset. He's got everything about that. And he would point to Udonis Haslam. Why? Because that's what their culture does. That's what their culture does. Two thoughts. One, Udonis Haslam was an undrafted free agent uh, from University of Miami. And so I think to that point, we often glorify the ultra-talented, ultra-gifted. But greatness is really when talent works as if it's not talented. And so... um, when you have a Kobe who works as if he's not talented, you get greatness. But for me, the greatness of a mindset or an approach, you can see it in a Udonis Haslam. Um, and it's just as special. And uh, for me, I've, I've actually always gravitated to those guys more than the great, the uh, all-time greats because I can't relate to the all-time greats as much because I've never been that. And so the, re- the relatedness is awesome. And then the other thing I'll just tell is a quick story of a past guest. We had Brian Grant on the podcast. And I, co- I coached Brian in Phoenix. I coached Brian in Phoenix. So what a fascinating guy and an yeah. amazing storyteller. And But Brian said, you know, he signed with the Heat um, and he was going to sign there for a veteran, like a veteran's minimum contract just because Riley blew him away. He went down to Miami. He's like, all right, I'm just going to sign. And, you know, um, and he was basically ready to sign and there was a grace period, but he had agreed verbally. And then Portland was like, what are you doing? We're going to offer you X amount of dollars. And he's getting crushed by the people of Portland. Uh, they're calling him stupid. And he's like, no, I just, Riley looked me in the eye. He was honest. And this is just, I want to be a part of this. And like the day before free agency is about to start, he calls his agent, Riley calls his agent and basically works out a deal to pay Grant a boatload of money. And Riley calls Grant up and basically says, you, you like what I did? And he said, yeah, like you didn't have to do that. And Riley goes, you're a man of your word to Grant. He goes, that's the type of people we want in, in the Miami Heat. And we want you here for as long as we possibly can get you. Um, and Grant said to this day, he's like, I will always defend Riley. He said he didn't have to do that. He could have had me on a one year deal, got me in the cheap. Um, and a lot of organizations do that or would have done that, but he saw it as a long game and he knew that I was going to be a culture center and someone that he wanted to go to war with. And so once again, uh, it just, it just speaks to what they value in Miami. Um, I want to close by uh, giving you an opportunity to share some of your poetry uh, because you've, you are obviously somebody who loves words, uh, <laughs> loves 
um, taking information from books and making it tangible and make it stick in your mind. Uh, and there's just been so much wisdom throughout this conversation today that I'm very grateful, but I know you also have original content. So I think there is tremendous power in digesting, uh, content, but I also encourage people to create. And, um, I think performers are, are no different, right? Like steal from people, digest, but then make it yours, create, innovate, um, you know, I think it's so important that people do that because if we just become digesters, then we're just a amalgamation of, of other people. And that's not to say that we ever really have an original idea because we're, if we live in this world, we're constantly taking from people, but I think there's just such value in creation. So I want to give you a platform and a megaphone to uh, share some of your poetry because it's beautiful and I think it'll also show people a side to you that also is not just digesting. Yeah, Brian, thank you. And and I have to I have to say this about it because I I started to write because not not to do anything else but to get people to know what I value. So and it, that's why it's not for pub. I've never published it. I've never done anything. I just share it because I want people. So I've written a poem on friendship, on, on what I view as success and, uh, you know, carpe diem, you know, to seize the day. And, you know, whenever I do give talks, you know, I do end my speeches with this just because I think it, you know, it kind of sums up, you know, a lot of the thoughts that I, I truly believe in, you know, and um, I'm on a, we're all on a path. We're all trying to improve. We're all trying to, to get somewhere. But I think that, if we don't value each moment, we, we get lost in, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to share this one. And I apologize. I don't know if this is okay, but I'm, I'm on a plane and I want to, this isn't a poem, but I just want to, cause I think it's important. I'm on a plane and, you know, first class doesn't suck. Right. So I'm in, you know, when they have the movies and somebody in 2B starts watching a movie and I'm in 3C and, and in 2D, I pick a movie, but it just happened to be the same one that was in diagonally the same one. I just started a little bit after. And 2D starts it a little bit after me. So I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, and flight goes on. And, you know, as a flight would go and movie goes, you, you find yourself wandering, right? You start wandering. Your mind starts wandering a little bit. So I view over it 2B, and I see the future. Oh, and then maybe I look over to 2D and I, I, I see the past. But the, the message that I got from that was I was not concentrating on the present. And I think it's very powerful that we all, you know, every moment by moment by moment. So I, I don't know why I brought that up. It was just at the time, it, I think that it, 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 it means something to me to, to share that, you know, we're only here for so many times. And I've lost some very close friends this year, like we all lost as part of life. But, you know, accepting and, and valuing the moment and being able to love the ones we're with when we do it. So I will end. I will share this with you. And you have a big old smile right now. So I call it a new day. OK, so a new day's dawning, new opportunities at hand to live as you believe. And for those beliefs, take a stand. So don't wallow in doubt or be crippled by fear. Take positive action and watch both disappear. Mistakes will be made and there'll be obstacles to bear. But you'll learn and you'll grow if you continue to care. 
Your faith can move mountains or help you achieve anything on earth. If you apply the faith that you've carried since birth, persist, just persist through whatever transpires. For it's the quest towards our dreams that quenches our desires. A new day's dawning. Be excited, feel free to become the person you always wanted to be.